Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope that you're well. If you're in the U.S., I hope you had a good, safe, quiet Thanksgiving. I'm writing this beforehand. Um, I know it will be a little weird for my family since we typically have a gathering of about eh, 30. Um, and this year it will just be a little family of four with lots of Zoom and FaceTime instead of seeing everyone in person. Um, I miss hugs. <laughs> But I hope you had a good, happy time because I do not have anything to cheer you up today. Um, yes, it's it's another Euripides day. And today we have the Trojan women or the Troades in Greek. Um, this play premiered at Dionysia in 415 BCE and it won second prize. Um, it actually won something. Uh, and given how scathing it is about war and the fact that Athens was in the middle of a war, this is particularly impressive. Um, <laughs> the play is set um, in that Greek camp that we got to be so familiar with when we read the Iliad. Uh, the war is over and Troy is burning in the background. Um, I'm not sure exactly how this setting was achieved in ancient Athens, but a tech team today could do oh, could do some incredibly moving things with lighting and scenery, given the technology we have available to us now. Um, but I'm, I'm sure they managed some very effective stuff in ancient Greece as well. Um, the cast consists of several characters we have seen in other iterations um, in Homer, the Homeric hymns, our other tragedies. Um, so you should have a familiarity with most of them. We have two gods represented, Poseidon and Athena. Uh, the captured Trojan women include Hecuba or Hecabe, uh, Cassandra, Andromache, and Helen. Yes, Helen is treated as a Trojan in this play, even though the whole war happened because she's Greek. Um, a note on Hecabe, uh, her name is sometimes translated as Hecuba and sometimes transliterated as Hecabe. I know that I have used both names for her um, over the span of this podcast. Um I will probably find myself calling her Hecuba in this episode because I'm working from Paul Roche's 1998 translation, and that's the name he uses. So that's the name I will keep seeing in my text as I'm writing the summary. Um, but back to the cast. So to recap, Poseidon, Athena, Hecuba, Cassandra, Andromache, and Helen. Um, on the Trojan side, we also see Astyanax, whom you'll remember as the adorable toddler son of Andromache and Hector. On the Greek side, we have Menelaus, and we'll see a whole new take on him in this play. And the final named character is a new one, Talthybius, who serves as herald, messenger, and unfortunate go-between. Um, they're also the usual assortment of spear carriers and so on. And as you can probably guess, the homogenous chorus is the titular Trojan women. Before we get too far... I do want to put a content warning on this one. Um, in addition to all of the usual Euripides horrors, this play includes a rather brutal infanticide. Um, I'd say spoiler alert, but I think I mentioned it in an Iliad episode. Um, so spoiler alert. Um, so with that, we'll take a short break for you to steal yourself <laughs> before we dive into the plot. 
Are you ready? The play opens on the scene of Troy burning in the background. Hecuba lies on the ground near some of the tents. Poseidon enters. He talks about how much he loves Troy and how sad he is to see its fall. He speaks of the Trojan horse and those who have died and those who have been captured, including one daughter of Tyndareus, Helen. Then he points out Hecuba and tells the audience that hers is the saddest of the stories. All of her sons are dead. Her daughter, Polyxena, was murdered at Achilles' tomb in secret. The only one of her children left is Cassandra, and thanks to Cassandra, or sorry, thanks to Apollo, Cassandra is a little crazy these days, but she's still a priestess dedicated to him, and Agamemnon plans to violate her status. He starts to say goodbye to his beloved Troy, but then Athena enters. She is remarkably polite to Poseidon, given that they have a rather rocky relationship throughout mythology. She asks if they can talk. I mean, he is her uncle, and he's a pretty big deal. Poseidon rolls his eyes at the flattery, but he agrees. Athena tells him that even though she sided with the Greeks throughout the war, she's pissed at how they have behaved since it ended. She's particularly angered by the fact that Cassandra had taken shelter in her temple and Ajax hauled her out of there. What exactly that act entailed is implied, but not outright stated. It is definitely a violation of Athena's temple, and it's probably a violent violation of Cassandra's body. Poseidon is, of course, happy to help Athena get revenge on the Greeks. They plot to make the Greek homecoming as bad as it possibly can be. Rough seas, storms, and whatever other tortures they can come up with. They fly off to finish their plans. Hecuba sits up and sings a lengthy lament. She curses Helen as the cause of the deaths of all she holds dear. She used to be a queen, and now now look at her. She used to sing and dance, and now listen to the song she sings. The older members of the chorus enter and join in the super depressing song about how they are preparing to leave leave their home forever. Eventually, the rest of the chorus, the younger women, enter and join the lament, and it's pretty... I'm trying to decide the right word here. Um, They wonder about the future. Perhaps their new homes in Greece won't be so bad. Think of the places they'll see. They hear some of them are beautiful. But then it might not be so great. I mean, who knows how their Greek captors will treat them. Will they be mere servants? Or will they be forced to be concubines? They have to stop imagining the best and worst possible outcomes because they see a Greek officer coming. Telphibius enters. He hates his job. Somehow he has drawn the short straw and has to be the messenger between the Greek commanders and the Trojan captives. And he does not enjoy any of what he has to say. And this will continue throughout the play and his discomfort will grow with every one of his entrances. Talthibius tells the women that they have all been allotted to the Greeks. Each one has been personally assigned. Hecuba scoffs at this news. Like, you know, it's a good thing. Oh, personally assigned. That's nice. Um, she asks about Cassandra. Talthibius mumbles that she's going to be Agamemnon's new secret concubine. Hecuba is appalled, but she catches her breath and asks about her other daughter, Polyxena. Talthibius says not to worry about her because all of her cares in life are over even though uh she's not sure she wants to know more Hecuba asks about her daughter-in-law Hector's wife Andromache 
Telphibia says that she's been awarded to the son of Achilles. Finally, Hecuba asks about herself. Odysseus won her, she is told. This is the worst news to Hecuba. Odysseus, the one who masterminded the Trojan horse. The Greeks are all bad, but Odysseus, he's the worst. The chorus clamors to learn their fates, but Telphibius puts up his hand and tells them to fetch Cassandra. He stops speaking when he sees light within one of the tents. He asks if they're trying to burn the camp down, but Cassandra enters carrying a torch, or maybe two, Euripides can't seem to decide. Um, it's just it's just her, it's just Cassandra, just crazy old Cassandra, and she sings a song about her pending marriage, or so she calls it, to Agamemnon, and she calls for the chorus and her mother to join her in the dance. They don't, but she keeps dancing anyway. Hecuba approaches her and manages to take the torch away and pass to the chorus, and, and Cassandra does her Cassandra thing and tells Hecuba that she, Cassandra, will mean Agamemnon's death. She says that Troy is more fortunate than Greece. I mean, think of how many men lost their lives over a single woman. Think of all the things they did. Agamemnon killed his own daughter because of Helen. The Trojans, on the other hand, they were able to die protecting their home from these invaders. That is far more noble than any of the Greek deaths. If Paris hadn't brought Helen to Troy, then none of that glory would have been possible. See, the war wasn't all bad. Telphibius has been on stage this entire time. He shakes his head, that crazy Cassandra. Who can believe anything she says? He's glad she hasn't been assigned to his bed. He should punish her for threatening Agamemnon, but she's clearly nuts. He's te- he tells her that it's time to go and tells Hecuba to get ready to be called by a Poseid- or, sorry, by Odysseus. But Cassandra isn't done. She says that Apollo told her Hecuba will die at Troy. And as for Odysseus, oh, he has a lot in store. Ten years of misery. Charybdis and Cyclops and Kirky. Oh, my. Not that she cares about Odysseus. She'll be in Hades long before he gets home. She tears off her priestly vestments, says farewell to her mother, and exits with Telthibius and his attendants. Hecuba collapses in tears. The chorus tries to comfort her, but she says to let her be. Let her outward appearance show just how far she has fallen. And then she rehashes everything that we've already seen or heard about. Um, The chorus leads her to a mat by the tents, and that's where she collapses and cries. The chorus sings about the Trojan horse, about how they were excited um, to celebrate the end of the war and to bring this this horse to Athena's temple and and how then the Greeks came out of the horse and killed everyone. Well, everyone except for those they enslaved. Some Greek soldiers enter with a wagon. The wagon bears the spoils of war, including Hector's armor and Andromache, who clings to her son Astyanax. The chorus asks her what's up, and Andromache and Hecuba sing a call-and-response lament over the loss of Troy in general, and Hector in particular, and with a little Helen bashing thrown in for good measure. When they're done with their song, Hecuba says that Cassandra has just been torn away, and Andromache tells Hecuba that Polyxena is dead. Telphibius had been rather vague when he spoke of Polyxena, so this is news to Hecuba. Uh, she thought that he meant she was just left to mourn at Achilles' tomb. Um, but she's not angry at him for trying to be gentle with her. She she knows he meant well. 
Um, But of course she mourns her daughter's death. And Andromache tries to comfort her. In her mind, Polyxena is the luckiest of them all because death is far better than the life that awaits the rest of them. And she speaks of how far they have fallen. And she does one of the worst things and tries to compare her grief to Hecuba's. Surely hers is much worse because she's off to live a life of pain while Hecuba knows that Polyxena suffers no more. Side note, you have a friend who's lost someone? Don't be Andromache. Just be there for them, okay? If you don't know what to say, then say that I don't know what to say. Sometimes that's all you can do, and that's enough. You can't make it better, so don't try. Okay, where was I? Hecuba. Hecuba mourns some more uh, for her children and for the life that she and the other Trojan women have lost. Um, and she tells Andromache not to cry because tears won't bring Hector back. And okay, again, these women are seriously failing how to talk to a grieving person 101. Just, okay, take this as your guide. Don't do what they keep doing, okay? Sorry, not really. Back to the play. Telphibius returns. He's even less excited to be there than he was before. This time he's come with the news that the Greeks have decided that Astyanax is a threat, so he's been condemned to death. Remember that content warning I gave you? Uh, Yeah, that's where we are. Are you ready? Or you can skip ahead about 30 seconds and hopefully we'll be past this part. Um, Astyanax is to be thrown from the walls of Troy to his death in a very difficult scene. Andromache says goodbye to her son, lashing out at the Greeks who are afraid of a toddler who never hurt anyone. After a lengthy speech, she pushes the boy away, but he runs back and clings to her so that he must be torn, screaming from her arms to be taken away to his death. Andromache is put back on the wagon and pulled off stage, followed by Telphibius. Hecuba collapses. She cries out for her grandson and her son. The chorus sings about how there was another time Troy was attacked by Heracles because Laomedon refused to pay him for slaying a sea monster. The chorus then sings about how Ganymede was taken away by Zeus and Tithonus was taken away by the dawn. The gods used to love Troy, but clearly they don't anymore. Menelaus enters. He is in high spirits. He's ready to be reunited with Helen, but he explains that he didn't come to Troy for her. He came to get revenge on Paris. That woman, whose name he can't even bring himself to say, even though he just said it, that woman isn't really his wife anymore. He's decided to let the Greeks execute her for all the trouble that she's caused. Hecuba warns him about this. She says that killing Helen is probably a good plan, uh, but that woman is trouble. She bewitches men with her beauty. He shouldn't let her near him, and she's probably right. Helen is dragged on stage. She begs for a fair trial, and with Hecuba's insistence, Menelaus concedes. Hecuba gives a whole new version of the story. First, she says that it's all Hecuba's fault because she's Paris's mother, and that it's really Paris's fault, or perhaps because Priam had been told in a dream that Paris was going to be the downfall of Troy, um, and sure, after Paris died, she could have left Troy, but, but she really couldn't, because whenever she tried to, she would get caught and be forced back, so don't hate her because she's beautiful. She can't help it. It's everyone's fault, except for her own. 
But whatever the case, there is no justice in killing her. Hecuba takes up the side of the prosecution. First, she says that Helen should have known better than to blame the gods for her own actions. Hera and Athena probably had nothing to do with it, despite the whole story of the goddess beauty contest that started the whole thing. And if Helen really wanted to escape, she could have always tried suicide, couldn't she? There was plenty of rope around for her to hang herself. She doesn't even feel sorry for anything she did. Menelaus is right to kill her. But Helen's spell is already working. Menelaus decides that maybe he should take her back to Greece instead, and then then he'll kill her once they get home. You know, to set an example. And Helen and Menelaus exit. And Helen's, you know, a little smug at that exit, isn't she? The chorus sings another lament and throws in a few good curses on their Greek captors while they're at it. Tell Thibius enters. He is followed by soldiers who are carrying Hector's shield. Astyanax's body lies on the shield, and if you thought Telthibius wanted to be anywhere else in his previous two scenes, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. He tells Hecuba that the Greek, Greek ships are starting to leave, and Andromache asked him to bring Hecuba, Astyanax's body, so the boy could be buried at Troy, along with his father's shield, so that he'd be near his father, right? Hecuba has a lengthy monologue as she does as asked. And it's what you would expect. It's about her grief and poor little Steinax who didn't deserve what happened to him. And she goes into detail on just how he looks. Um, I'll let you read the speech for yourself. She remembers how he used to jump on her bed and tell her how he'd leave a lock of his hair at her grave. But instead, she's the one who will leave a lock of hair on his grave. Uh, with the help of the chorus, she prepares the body, occasionally pausing to curse Helen or Odysseus or any of the Greeks. Talthibius returns. The Greeks have been ordered to finish burning down the city. It's time for them to go. The chorus watches the city burn and slowly exits, led by Talthibius and the Greek soldiers. And that is where the play ends. Congratulations on making it through. Euripides is dark. <laughs> Maybe that's why he wasn't as appreciated in his time as he is today. Um, I do find it interesting that he actually won an award for this one, even if it was just second place. Uh, structurally, it is better than some of his others play, other plays. It's not as disjointed as, say, Heracles is. Um, but given the subject matter, I'm surprised that it won. By focusing on the Trojan women, Euripides highlights the Greeks' bad behavior. And if you think about some of those lessons that you learn or hopefully learn in elementary school, there are two related to winning and losing. First, don't be a sore loser, right? But on the other hand, you also need to be a good winner. Don't rub it in. Be gracious to the loser, right? And the Greeks are anything but good winners in this play. And in the character of Telthibius, we can see that there is some awareness that the behavior of the Greeks is excessive. He does not want to be there. <laughs> he does not want to tell the Trojan women all of the things that he is sent to tell them. He knows that the Greeks have gone too far. And in case we weren't sure, we're told upfront by Poseidon and Athena that the Greeks are out of line. Um, 
The play this most reminds me of, though, is Shakespeare's King John. Um, and that's because of the whole Astyanax ordeal. Um, there are parallels between Astyanax and Arthur and Andromache and Constance. Um, now, this may be where my brain goes because Constance is one of my dream roles. Um, yes, Shakespeare nerds, I do like King John. I know it's not his most popular, but I love the character of Constance. Um, and and it's really because of one scene. It's because of her mad scene, her reaction to her son's death. Um, and I know I could totally go and look this up, but I don't know if Shakespeare was influenced at all by this play. But again, that's the play that that, that scene really made me think of. Um, there are a couple of directing questions that I have, though. One of the reasons that I like Roche's translations is that he really thinks about these plays as theater. Um, they were meant to be seen. So if all you have is something to read, then you need some guidance on how to picture it. And Roche includes a lot of stage directions. Um, but as a performer, I'm not sure I always agree on the interpretation he puts into his stage directions. So here's my first question. How does Cassandra exit? Roche says that she's roughly marched away, but that doesn't seem to be in keeping with her final speech. Um, like, she seems very willing and prepared and ready to go. Um, but, of course, the thing to remember is that there are multiple characters that we're dealing with. It's not just about Cassandra. Um, so maybe she is exiting willingly, but the Greek soldiers don't care because, after all, we've already established that they are pretty sore winners, right? Um, so maybe they do treat her roughly, even though it's completely unnecessary, which might be a very powerful directing decision to make. So that's um, one question I have for anyone considering directing this. How does Cassandra exit? And my second question is something Roche made a conscious decision about. Um, and in his stage directions, he clearly states that they are his. There is textual uh, support for the decision, but it is still something he chose to write. Um, it, it, he chose to write the directions the way he did. It's not, it's not something that Euripides wrote. Um, so, how does Hecuba exit? Does Hecuba exit? In his ending, Roche has Hecuba as the last of the Trojan women in the line, slowly walking off stage. But before she exits, she collapses and dies, fulfilling the prophecy Cassandra made that Hecuba would die at Troy. I kind of like this ending. I think it is very much in keeping with the drama of this tragedy. And I can visualize it with the lighting of Troy burning in the background. I mean, I, I can see this scene with her collapsing at the end. I think it makes sense. But, again, this is Roche's interpretation and how he thinks it should end. So that's my other directing question. Does Hecuba die at the end of this play? So, what do you think? We didn't even get into Menelaus and Helen as portrayed in this play, or Odysseus. We never see him, but he still plays a huge role. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything I noticed or anything that this play made you think of. Um, the blog is at triumphyourclio.school.blog. The URL, maybe a link, are in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will read book 14 of the Odyssey. Talk to you then. 
You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.